Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, before I continue, I just wanted to remind you that our worship service starts at 12. And the reason why it's important that you come at 12 o'clock is we do start off with um, church happenings and announcements. Um, our church is moving fast. We have a lot of things going on. And it would be wonderful if uh, we could all participate um, in all that is happening in our church. You know, if you, don't, if you weren't here for it, then you can look in your bulletin that you should have received on your way in. And there's so many announcements. And I would say that they are all important. And please do come, um, you know, early as you can. Even though uh, worship service starts at 12, I encourage people to come way before 12 and you can have a heart of prayer and prepare your hearts for service. Um, sometimes giving service is difficult. And sometimes, you know, we might be pumped, we might be happy. But no matter what our emotional state, we want to make sure that we are ready spiritually. So that's why we come a little early and we pray to prepare our hearts for worship and to give worship. Um, <clears throat> there's a really important announcement that we said before, but I need to go over it again um, just because I know that some of us have missed it. But in two weeks, on October 16th, we will be having a congregational vote in this church to leave the PCUSA denomination. And because our leaders decided to leave the PCUSA denomination, our congregation has to come together to vote. I know last year we had a similar vote, but this time it's going to be head by the presbytery, and they're going to be the one organizing this vote. But that's why it's so much more important that you come out and you show up and then you vote uh, it's going to be on October 16th, and because we have an all-congregational vote, we are meeting here for worship at 11, but registration starts from 9 a.m. So I encourage all of you to come at 9 a.m. You have to bring a photo ID, because they mean serious business, apparently. So you have to bring a photo ID, and then you'll get a voter registration card and then it'll say either Hillary or Trump. No, um, it will, you'll get a voter registration card. And after service, you can go down and trade it in for a ballot. So it's a little complicated. That's why we want you to come as early as possible. What we will do for you is we're going to have a nice little breakfast. So that if you do come and you register and then you have an hour or two to kill, you can have breakfast and fellowship right here in the foyer area. But we want you to come at 9, and we want you to register, because I believe they might close registration at 11. So if you come for worship at 11, you might not get a chance to vote. And we are encouraging all members of our congregation to vote so that we can move on with this part of our church life. Uh, I know that the last time we had a vote, our EM really did help and participate well. So we are looking forward to EM's uh, participation again. Once again, we have so many wonderful things going on in our church. It's in the announcements. If you have any questions, or if you want to participate, come talk to me. Come talk to any one of our pastors or leaders. And, you know, even um, two weeks ago, was it two weeks ago or last week? Time just flies. We had our 
a family uh, group meet, and it was awesome. It was so good to see so many of our families come out. And this is just a start. So if you missed that meeting, come to this following one. That means if you're married with or without kids, we want you to come out and have fellowship with us, pray with us, worship with us. But most importantly, what we are going to do is we're going to build this community so that we can build this church. Uh, we have so many things going on, so please do look at that. Uh, and be aware of what's going on in our church. It's so important that we all participate. Um, moving on, I just want to make a small mention that <clears throat> this past week, uh, the train to Hoboken had derailed, and we lost one person, and hundreds, um, over 100 people were injured. And actually, one member of our congregation was actually on that train when it derailed, he was in the second car, but praise God, he was al he's alive, he's well, he's, um, you know, he's not injured. I think last time I talked to you, you said your elbow hurt a little bit, but that's amazing. Your elbow just hurt, but God really had protected him, and I was just giving glory to God. But I thought maybe we could take a time to pray for those that are injured, that are wounded, and those that are <clears throat> the family that is going through the tragic loss of losing their loved one. So let's take just a few minutes to pray and lift up uh, those that are suffering. And let's pray that God would bring healing, that God would console the hearts that really need him at the most right now. Let's pray. So God, we lift up all those that are suffering now. Even though they weren't injured, there are so many now that live in this uncertainty and maybe even fear and anxiety because of what had happened. And even though we don't know the full picture yet, this we do know, that we as your people, we can place our trust in you and ultimately we are safe in your hands. And we thank you for this gift and privilege. But th for those that are suffering, we ask God that you would reach out and you would touch them with your healing hand, that you would make yourself known to them. So in this tumultuous and dark time, that you would show yourself to be true, a light, the light, and Lord, Savior of the world. So be with them. In Jesus' name we, in Jesus name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to continue on with the book of Genesis. And this, this passage that we read is a little tough one. <clears throat> and so I do appreciate your prayers for me as we expound on this passage. Uh, it gives people a rise, at least maybe of some kind of confusion or is this a passage just simply about homosexuals? And so it's important that we go through this passage, but it's important that we ask for a spirit of discernment. When you read the Bible, just don't read the Bible for the sake of reading. And I know there are many of us doing this 90-day Bible reading, which is amazing. It's awesome. When you read the Bible, do you pray for discernment? 
do you pray that God open understanding to you? Otherwise, we can just simply read it, and it can just go by. And it's like we haven't read it at all. The reason why we want to ask for discernment isn't simply to know what's right and wrong. It isn't simply to know right and wrong. And Charles Spurgeon said this, discernment is not simply a matter of telling the difference between what is right and wrong. Rather, it is the difference between right and almost right. Discernment is not simply a matter of telling the difference between what is right and wrong. Rather, it is the difference between right and almost right. For me, it's the same as saying life and almost life. We know that we as a church, we want to focus and we want to have sola scriptura as our base, knowing that we have scripture as our ultimate authority, which is why we are having this vote as well. We look at 2 Timothy chapter, third, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and it says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So that, this is verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know that we have work ahead of us and we need to be equipped. We need to have this discernment. And what gives that to us is the spirit opening our eyes to the word. The scripture is my authority. It is our authority of all things regarding life and godliness. And this passage was long, and our deacon John read it so nicely and wonderfully, but this isn't the complete passage that I wanted to go over. And of course, we don't want to read about 50 verses, so I just narrowed it down to the core 17. But it really starts in Genesis 18, verse 16, right after the passage we looked at um, last week. And that is the promise, right? But I do have uh, three points as we go on. The first is the judgment. The second is the fruit of sin. And the third is his mercy. Judgment, fruit of sin, and his mercy. The judgment. In verse 16 of chapter 18, it says, When the men got up to leave, they looked towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. It might seem simple, but what is going on is the narrative is showing us that the men had affected beginnings and endings. Beginnings and endings as messengers of hope and life for Abraham and Sarah, but also judgment and death for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is why I could come up with this worthy saying, what is hope and life to one person is death and destruction to another. What is hope and life to one person can be death and destruction to another. It goes on to say that the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So here the Lord is now showing Abraham something for a reason. 
right? He's like, I'm not going to keep this from Abraham. I'm going to show him something because I want to teach him what is right and what is good and what is just. And so a lot of people will come up to this passage and we have a saying that is a little bit confusing. And the saying is very popular. Excuse me. The saying is very popular. The saying is, love the sinner, hate the sin. Has anybody heard of that before? Love the sinner, hate the sin. We believe that this is a grave mistake that this statement purports because when I say love the sinner, hate the sin, first of all, what I am doing is I'm taking everything and putting one on only one definition to love. So listen carefully. When I say love the sinner, hate the sin, what I'm trying to do is I want to make this very generalized and broad statement that love only means one thing, which is not true. It's not true at all. For instance, you can say, I love my Xbox. And you can also say, I love my wife. But if you continue to use these two sentences in conjunction over and over again, I guarantee you will lose one or the other. You can't say that my love for the Xbox is the same as my love for my wife. God does love the world, yes. But in Psalm 5.5, how do we make sense of the statement where it says God hates all evildoers? If I continue to say that this love only means one thing, we come to a problem. And we say, continue to say these broad, generalizing statements that we love the sinner, hate the sin. And then we have a statement like this in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 19. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. You guys remember this one? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. The sinner and the sin is not separated in this statement. How do we make sense of that if we're going to make these statements like love the sinner, hate the sin? Here is the problem, ultimate problem with a statement like that. When you come to a passage like Sodom and Gomorrah, you're confused because statements like this have taught us essentially this. We elevate the person to the central and ultimate state where everything revolves around the person. Here, look at me. Surely sin isn't in my sphere. God can't possibly hate me. And this is the worldview we have created for ourselves. So of course the statement, God hates sinners, will be so alien and so foreign to so many, even if they call themselves a Christian. Because our worldview is we want to put ourselves in the center. Jesus died for me. God loves me. I am in the center. Sin is outside somewhere here because God pushed it away because I want to be the center of this universe, of my worldview. So this statement would be confusing when I see another passage like Proverbs 6 or Psalm 5. The appropriate view to have is that what we place in the center isn't me, but what we place in the center is God. God is in the center. He is in the ultimate place. Everything outside God then 
is in this sphere of wrath and that will come ultimately upon everything outside of God. If we are to cover what kind of loves there are then to explain certain passages and how these loves are to be interpreted, lived out, it would take more than 30 or 40 minutes. It would take more than this session. That's why theology is important. That's why doctrine is important. That's why we as Christians, disciples, gather more than once a week to study and pray and to seek God. Anyone who says they are tired of theology, anyone who says they are tired of religion, they are trying to sell you something that is not God, and I call that person a huckster, they are selling you emotions and experiences, and these things, my brothers and sisters, are fleeting. In Romans 5, it says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We put God in the center. Anything outside God is an enemy of God. What God has done then through Jesus is pull us back to him. God is the center, my friends, not us. We can't, we have to stop thinking. And this is the same thing. Science has taught us the earth is not in the center of the universe. In fact, somewhere, like, somewhere there, if this is the center. And the center is a big black hole, right? But we are not in the center of even our galaxy, our solar system. We thought the earth revolved around us. Our language uh, portrays that when we say the sun rises and sets. But this was wrong. Nothing revolves around the earth. Maybe the moon, but the moon is tiny, right? We t God does not revolve around us. So this is God teaching us about what love is. We have to keep our eyes open. Hopefully, I had opened a, a huge box for you. I'm not even going to try to put it back together so that we can search more, so that we can look into the word, so that we can have study together and pray. What did God mean by this? What does the Bible say about this? And why does God say it that way instead of instantaneously accepting, rejecting everything black and white? Because it's not how the world works. I don't know why we see the Bible that way. <clears throat> and in this passage... Abraham is now praying. So God, remember, we said God is going to teach us. Teach us about what? Teach us about righteousness. Teach us about love. Teach us about something, right? So <clears throat> Abraham, Abraham now listens. He's like, I'm going to bring judgment. And Abraham, surely no, God. Surely no. You wouldn't sweep away the righteous with the wicked, would you? So what if there are 50 people? Would you do such a thing, O oh, righteous and just God? And God listens and he says, 
No, not for 50. I'll save it. And he goes down the line, right? Abraham comes back. What about 45? Just five less. God, would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay, not 45. What about 40? 30? 20? 10? And God says, if there's 10, I'll spare these cities. And as a kid, I read this and I always wondered, why didn't Abraham say five or one? Because maybe then it would have been saved. Here is something that the Lord is doing. He is teaching Abraham through this process. By revealing his plan to Abraham, there is a subsequent back and forth that follows. But even in this back and forth, God is teaching Abraham. What is God teaching Abraham? God is teaching Abraham about Righteous community. Righteous community. You know, when I go into my apartment, there are two doors. I open one, and then I have to open my apartment door. But when I open the first door, um, there are black widows, spiders everywhere. It's just crazy. I'm not even kidding. I invite you to come and look if you dare. Um, I always keep them there because I always wanted to say I'm a manly man. I don't care about black widow spiders. But now they've grown to like six or seven all over my door. So now it's a little scary. So I always suppose if I get bit, I should learn where the nearest emergency room is. But there is actually a community of black widow spiders. And I've realized that the more there are, the harder it is now for me to get rid of them. And so I probably need some outside help. Uh, but before I get rid of it, I want to invite some of you guys to come over and enjoy watching the black widow spiders. They have that little red speck on the back, and they have a red underbelly. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So if you haven't seen it in real life, then um, you can do it. I always had this thing where I don't want to get rid of spiders because spiders do us a good, right? Don't they like eat moss and all these nasty bugs? So I haven't actually had a bug in my apartment. But then there is that fear that as I leave the apartment, I might get bitten and maybe die. So I, I, I'm, I'm kind of measuring bugs or die. But the community of black widows there, it shows us something, right? What is it showing us? God is trying to teach us that you need a righteous community, not just any kind of community, a righteous community. You cannot survive by yourself. Your family cannot survive on its own. You need a righteous community. Without it, no matter how strong you are spiritually, no matter how much you boast of your spiritual pedigree, look who I am. Look what God has done for me in my personal life. You will fall without the righteous community. You need the righteous community. And God is showing us at least one thing in this portion of the passage that we can't skip over. You need a righteous community. Do you have a community that you pray with? That you study the word with? That you have fellowship and break bread with? And that's what the apostles did in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to these things. We need that. We can't, we can't be so arrogant to say, I don't need that. All I have to do is do this one thing. Maybe come out one time to church, talk to nobody. But you need a righteous community 
And this is what we as a church want to provide. If you do not have this, you will fall. And this is where it leads us to the fruit of sin. So the angels, the two angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah to confirm all the crimes that are going on. It says in the Bible, you need two or more witnesses for capital punishment. So God is even showing us these things here. And we see all these amazing similarities come. And these are noted. That it's important to note here, Abraham and Lot have all these parallels. They are both hosts. Abraham was the model host. Lot was a little fumbling. A little fumbling might be an understatement when he wanted to take care of them. And there was that gang rape waiting outside. He walked outside the door and he said, please don't gang rape these men, but you can rape my daughters. I, I don't know how, of, I, I don't know where that would go in that ethical spectrum, but we know he was fumbling as a host. Both had hurried, hurried meals. Abraham's was lavish, even though it was hurried, but Lot's was unleavened bread because there was, like I said, a gang rape waiting to happen. After the meal, the angels ask where Sarah is and likewise ask Lot if there are any relatives other than the ones in the house. Sarah laughs when she hears that she's about to have a child. Lot's sons-in-law laugh when they say they need to flee the city because it's about to be destroyed. <clears throat> Abraham pleads to God to save, even if it's this 10. God says, yes. Lot pleads to people, please, please come and be saved. And he, he can't even convince uh, his sons-in-law or those in his roof. There, there's a lot of similarities, um, a lot of parallels that we have to note that it's coming up here on purpose. Um, Sarah receives a child out of joy and laughter and in that promise. And Lot's wife was very salty about losing what she had, so she turned around, and she literally became a pillar of salt. Um, you know, we see that salt here, an overwhelming presence of salt is associated with death and barrenness. Uh, think of the Dead Sea. I think it's amazing that after 5,000 years of this story, now we actually use it in our everyday language that if you're bitter, you're salty but it first came from Lot's wife. I'm just letting you know. You're not, you're not original if you said, oh, you're being salty. This was, this was there way long time ago when people looked at Lot's wife, they would say she was pretty salty. Um, and so we go into this passage, and even though I may joke, people always want to take this passage very seriously because the question has come up, is this about homosexuality? Is this about God condemning the homosexual life? And I have this answer for you, uh, yes and no, because that won't satisfy anybody, right? Yes, because homosexuality is a sin, and no, because you want to make it bigger than your sin. You want to make homosexuality bigger than your sin. Your infidelity to your spouse when you lust is a sin in the same category. Your engagement in premarital sex is a sin in the same category. But what we want to do is when we read stories like this, we want to elevate homosexuality to something greater so that we can distance ourselves and say that person is the bigger sinner. And that's why I say no. What this is teaching us is that sex within the confines of biblical marriage is about me 
God and you. Rape, all sex outside of biblical confines of marriage, is about you and God have to please me. The oppressor then is constantly demanding things at your expense. Sex outside of the confines of biblical marriage, sex as a gift that is given to a husband and wife, is supposed to be, I lift the other up. But everything outside of that, God is showing us is that, no, I want to be pleased. I want to be satiated. I want to be lifted up. So I will do anything, anything so that I can be lifted up. Who cares if you're pushed down? Who cares if I squash you in the process? So in fact, what we teach to our young people is if you do have sex outside of the confines of marriage, it is not love. In fact, it is lust and you are loving yourself way more, so much more that you actually hate the other person. And if you live this life longer and longer, you will see the truth of this statement. Sex was meant to elevate the other. All other forms degrade the man and woman to objects of the lowest form. Not, the, not to the image of God, but rather a thing to use to please the self. That's how I can exercise my superiority, superiority over you. My needs are meant to be fulfilled, and it doesn't matter what God thinks. It doesn't matter what you think. My needs are more important. That is what we are saying when we do these things outside the confines of biblical marriage. Look at what continues to happen. When, someone, when Lot tries to stop them, the people go to Lot and they call him what? They call him this fellow. The equivalent to this in our language today would be this guy. Look at this guy. Who does he think he is, this guy? What we are doing, when we say this guy, you are stripping that person of their name, of their identity, of their worth, and we're saying you're not even worth it for me to call you by your name. I'm just going to call you this guy, this fellow. Who does he think he is? Because I want to step on you. When I lower you, it's because I want to step on you so that I can assume a higher position. We see societies that continue to grow and grow in this manner. And I got to tell you, this is bigger than just homosexuality. When I continue to read this passage and I see the war-torn things that are going on in Africa today, I can't help but to see and note such huge parallels. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, of the Congo, there are so many rapes that go on. So many rapes, but they are now estimating that four out of the ten people that are raped are men. Four out of the ten people that are raped are men. They don't usually come out because it's so embarrassing. And this is from the Oxford University Press. We want to live the way we want to live because we are wicked. In just, look at us here too. In just a few generations, we have redefined the word love to being only one possible thing. And it can't mean anything else. Love has to mean acceptance. It can't possibly mean anything else. That is what we have redefined the word love into now in our society. 
And that's why judgment is pronounced, because it is not love. In fact, it is wicked. It is hatred. When I go outside, because what we know is if God is in the center, if God is central and ultimate, what does it say in 1 John? In 1 John it says, God is love. So when I go outside of God, what I do is not love, no matter how much I try to convince myself. And no matter how difficult it is, and this is a difficult issue for today, what we want to do, though, is we, as a community, as a righteous community, we want to learn what love is by being in the presence of God. Because when we are outside, judgment is pronounced. The fruit of sin is death. But it doesn't go stop there. God doesn't bring judgment without careful investigation. So far as coming down like we saw in the Tower of Babel to see for himself or sending angels into the fray, into that war-torn zone, into societal chaos. But what he does is he goes down to see and when he brings justice, this is the justice that he's bringing. He is avenging the oppressed by punishing the oppressors. Sodom and Gomorrah was noted also for social oppression, as it says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 to 17. Adultery, lying, abetting a criminal, Jeremiah 23, 14. Arrogance, complacency, showing no pity for the wicked, for the needy, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 16, 49. I read this and I was like, wait, aren't those our presidential candidates? But we'll move on. But before judgment what he does is he gives ample time for the oppressors to repent. He gives ample time for the oppressors to repent. God spares Lot for the sake of Abraham. God spares the wicked for the sake of the righteous. God spares us for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. That if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you will be saved, you and your household. When we talk about his mercy, we talk about God's mercy and it is baffling. It is amazing. Lot, until the very end, did not have faith. He actually wasted time. When, when destruction was imminent, you know, scientifically, we can, we can say that there was this incredible earthquake, and when there's an intense earthquake, usually accompanied by lightning, which intense earthquakes are, there's sulfuric gases that rise up, and, when ignite, and, and the lightning ignites the sulfuric acids, then we can see the rain and brimstone that is explained here. Sure, we can see all these things, but it was imminent. The angels wanted to take them out. And even though destruction was imminent, he wastes time arguing with the angels. No, no, please, just send me to this small town Zor. Zor was part of what was supposed to be destroyed. And what are you saying when you say something like, please just send me to a place like Zor? You are saying that because the sin, the quantity of sin is smaller, it's okay, I'll be fine. I'm not as bad as them. Oh, oh God, I'm not as bad as the Sodomites uh, and uh, the people of Gomorrah, right? Because 
We think that the quantity of sin is smaller, it's okay, I'll be fine. This irrationality of unbelief is shown in Lot, but it's shown in the way we live as well. If you take this sin away, this one thing, I can't survive, God. There's no way. So please, God, I know you want me to follow you. I know there's life in you. But please let me have this one thing. I just need this one thing. I can't, I I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And death is imminent. But what does God say in verse 21? He blows us away by saying, okay, I will not overthrow. God's grace to very imperfect people is amazing and accommodating and it's baffling. God, you're a God of justice. I know I should die. I know the sins that I've committed are wicked. They are terrible. They not only deteriorate my own family, but it has affected the community that I'm in. I'm poisonous. Like those black widow spiders. But he says okay to that. Because he takes that sin upon himself. Sin that should have destroyed us. Sin that should have annihilated us. Sin that should have humiliated us. He took that sin upon the cross. And he was humiliated the cross isn't something that you see there and you're like, oh, that, that, that's pretty gruesome and it's, that's about it. The most humiliating thing that you could do to a person, the Romans thought of, and that was the crucifixion. And Jesus took that exact path. He was broken. And he was killed for us. So that we can have this grace. This astounding this accommodating, this amazing grace. My friends, we are people of grace now so that when we invite others to this place, it's a place of grace where we say, Jesus is here to heal you, to forgive you, and to give you a righteous community. Let's pray. And let's take this time to pray and lift up to the Lord an honest heart. Where have we been failing? Where have we been falling? Where have we lacked? And Jesus comes and says, come before the altar, come before the cross, lay down your burdens and pick up mine for this light. Let's offer up our sins, our lives, our everything to the Lord at this time, knowing that he is good, that he is patient, and that he prefers mercy over judgment. Let's pray.
Lord, we come to you now reminded that it was your body that was broken for us. It was your blood that was spilled for us. And because of you, we are able to have this incredible grace. And now we don't want to make it a grace that we take for granted. But Lord, we want to be the righteous community that we were meant to be. We want to be the one that follows you, taking up our cross daily so that we can be your disciples, living in fullness of the joy that is set before us just as it was set before your son. So be with your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.